The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! We're back, and I guess we're at episode 57 now of They Must Be Destroyed on Sites. I'm your host, Lee Russell. I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing just great. How are you? Good. We're going to be looking again at some more crime films. Third from last episode in that, that little series we're doing. We're going to be checking out The Friends of Eddie Coyle and Zero Effect tonight. And before we do that, uh, I, I think I should make a mention of how much Jack Graham uh, spiked our numbers <laughs> since he, <laughs> since he, he does he that. He does that. Now, now we'll see how many this episode gets, and that that will show like because I think people just show up to listen to Jack, and then they don't care about the rest of the little people like us. You know, it's, mm. it's really just for Jack. See, I'm I'm, I'm kind of I'm almost kind of hoping the audience drops off because I'm I'm almost kind of feeling a pressure now where oh. Uh, Jack Graham just all of a sudden introduced this whole new uh, urbane, intelligent audience to our shitty little podcast, and now I feel like we have to up our game to to keep them. I, I just feel the need to talk about kinky shit every episode now because those are the you know those are the people listening. <laughs> we want to hear you talk about dirty sex, Daniel. Do yeah. <laughs> I will provide. I will. I will provide. But I I will, I will say it was really cool to uh, to have Jack on and. I know he was uh, spending basically the, the last two weeks saying how much he sucked on the episode or whatever, and he didn't. <laughs> he, he's the classic self-deprecating English man, you know. Who just, yeah. Uh, so, no, no, I was terrible. I was terrible. I can't. I, I had I had fifty other intelligent things to say, and I didn't say them. So therefore, I'm I'm terrible. So no, that's because you you've just got more to say than you know. I I just dominated the conversation too much. That was my that was the issue. Yeah. You know, you're just going to um, get rid of me. You're going to shit can me, and Jack's going to be the new co-host. <laughs> but uh, I, I will say, uh, actually, uh, Jack, I guess, enjoyed the conversation so much that he still had more to say. So he actually uh, posted on on his blog this week uh, a little bit of follow up on Blue Velvet, and we'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested to uh, see what else he had to say. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great piece. He was also posting some salon was doing like a, a some think pieces about Blue Velvet last week mm-hmm. or the week before last when we were like it was like wow what a, what a nice little coincidence of timing you know very fortuitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I can I mention my favorite uh, joke from uh, Blue Velvet that I forgot to mention on the podcast? I don't think I yeah. mentioned this when we were recording. Um, it's when uh, Jeffrey is in the uh, bathroom right when he's flushing the toilet. And uh, he misses the four honks, and he just mm-hmm. kind of gets this little shitting grin on his face. And he goes Heineken while he's like zipping his fly. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's 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 just, it made me laugh every time. It was uh, such a silly little uh, moment. So <laughs> nice, oh Heineken. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, we do have a couple comments uh, we should uh, just cover here. We had one on the actual uh, YouTube 
version of the episode last week. Seth Thomas says, I remember the buzz about this movie when it came out. I think the zeitgeist, and he's referring to uh, Blue Velvet. Uh, I think the zeitgeist of 1986 was more that this movie proposed that in middle-class America, there were things happening under the surface that people in polite society didn't talk about, and it made people wonder what could be happening in their communities. He said Rosalini's performance was incredible, and the Stockholm Syndrome theory seems to be an undercurrent. Lynch's use of symbolism was obviously not lost on anyone. I was in high school when this movie came out. We even talked in lit lit class about uh, Blue Velvet and how it used symbols to show there was this dichotomy of living in the USA. Great review, guys. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you. I, I like it when our uh, listeners uh, use the word dichotomy in sentences. I think it, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a nice thing. You know? so, yeah. uh, uh, and our friend uh, James Murphy from uh, Pex Lives, uh, he posted on our uh, Facebook page. We have a Facebook page, by the way. Hold on. Wait a minute. We have a Facebook page? We do. And it, and it is the single best way to get in contact with us and, and get your feedback uh, read on the episode. They must be destroyed on site, on Facebook. Look it up. It's there. We accept anybody. But he says, I love hearing Jack in film buff mode. Great episode, fellas. I can't quite hack Blue Velvet. It's completely haunting, but I find the violence uh, against women on the razor edge of gratuitous. I can deal with Cannibal Holocaust video nasty shit, but when welded to three-dimensional characters who move in a beautiful dreamscape, it's honestly outside of my comfort zone. I'm not convinced that I'm a David Lynch fan. Blood Simple is fascinating because it's the Coens before all the machinery was warmed up. It's a little simpler, a little less polished, and I really appreciate that about it. In terms of mood, it reminds me mostly of Barton Fink, but they're not quite sure what kind of filmmakers they are yet, and that blank canvas quality is what makes a lot of debuts so intriguing. Uh, keep up the good work. I've dropped all my other film podcasts. They must be destroyed on site is the one that hits me where it matters. Wow. That, that's high praise from, from James. And he's yeah. he's the co-host of City of the Dead, which is one of the great movie podcasts out there oh. as far as I'm concerned. Um, although James is the weak link on that podcast. Can we can we agree that Holly is the real uh, Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. I apologize, James, but uh, Holly is the one we all listen to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, no, uh, James. I think James would actually agree with that. You know, quite honestly, Probably. James, uh, come back on Holy Space Band sometime. Where uh, we we miss you. We haven't heard from you in a while. So uh, yeah, and I, I know he's he's expressed interest in uh, joining in at some point uh, to do the skull possibly because he missed mm-hmm. out on that uh, in the actual. Uh, City of the Dead podcast, so, and I know he just, he needs to get some uh, shit in order in his own personal life, uh, get schedules worked out and stuff, so um, honestly, I, ju- I just put it out there that whenever he's ready, we're ready, and we'll do the skull, and then it'll be awesome. Or whatever, whatever else he wants to do, we're good. James James yeah. Murphy on this show would be astonishing, so I would I would love that. Yeah, but that's, um, that's I, great. I'm just going to bring all my uh, nerdy Doctor Who friends over onto this podcast, Lee. Uh, anybody who wants to show up and is a nerdy Doctor Who friend of mine, please. Well, we've been talking that uh, we, we've been sort of discussing uh, preliminary uh, sort of uh, merging of the podcast into one network of some sort. So it, it kind of feels like that's just going to happen eventually in the future. Yeah, yeah. We, we, basically, we're we're becoming one, uh, you know, gestalt organism. Uh, uh-huh. It's going to be. They must be destroyed, always spaceman or something, you know. It's or gonna be like uh, 
It's going to be like that uh, South Park episode. Destroy where... the spaceman on site. That's what it's going to be called. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be like that uh, South Park episode where uh, Cartman uh, became merged with his Trapper Keeper or whatever. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which was itself just an Akira reference, really. So. Yes, yes. We're basically going to turn into Akira and we're going to kill a lot of people. Um, yeah, I, I didn't mention that. Did, well, did, that's I, did, did, I, did I give away the murders we're going to do? Did I just do that? No, no, I'll, I'll try to edit that out. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but 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 thanks, uh, James. That's that's awesome. Uh, just the fact that you said you've dropped all your other film podcasts for us—that's uh, goddamn it. <laughs> we we need that, to... that means that means we have to actually do our jobs from here on out. No more no more fucking around. Yeah, uh, here uh, we, you know we actually have to like think about this shit. Yeah, I, I can't get wasted and then forget everything I say on podcasts anymore. I have to actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I keep feeling like we we keep getting pushed up to some level where we have to uh, uh, <laughs> we have to keep the quality up now, which is really distressing. Um, <laughs> it's going to become like a job now. Like, yeah, really. <laughs> um, and also, uh, just just a little comment from uh, Mike Murphy, no relation to James Murphy, as far as I know. And he said, "They're just side puppets for each other." Yeah, uh, he said, "One, Russ Myers is God." True. Yep. Uh, second, I'd rather drink vomit than PBR, and I questioned him on that one. <laughs> yeah, I I, 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 I would definitely rather drink PBR. Than, I drank PBR on the episode, and I would much rather do that than drink vomit. So. Uh, but he said, "Good episode. The fight, the, despite the fact that I never cared for Blood Simple." Well, you know, Mike, I love your podcast. I love your taste in movies. But here's where you're wrong. <laughs> Blood Simple is brilliant. I don't care what you have to say about it. Blood Simple is brilliant. <laughs> but at the same time, badass boobs and body counts podcast—they're awesome. So, okay, can, can I can I uh, can I pick a bone with uh, that podcast? Okay. Uh, this is uh, jumping ahead into the what we've been watching segment, but uh, I actually watched Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls okay. on uh, that uh, podcast. Uh, rec- well, not recommendation. So uh, they did a, they did a, a a hardcore episode mm-hmm. where they did uh, a, a 1978, I believe, uh, yeah, a hardcore film with John Holmes and mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of uh, lovely ladies, including uh, Miss uh, Candida Royale who uh, died a few years ago, but she was... Uh, I actually know her as a sex educator. I know her as, like, a, a you know, a, a, as a writer. Um, and so I'd never actually seen her do a, do, a, do a film, and she's the best thing in the film, no question. They completely got obsessed with the fact that, like, there might have been a slight, like... Anal leakage? On, a, an anal leakage <laughs> going on in the anal scene towards the end of the film. And I literally was like, this can't be that bad. Like, this cannot be... Like, they go into ridiculous lengths about this thing. I watched uh, just that just that scene. I, like, fast-forwarded to it, and I'm like, that's what you think? It's a blink and you miss it. Like, if the, like it's gone. Like, I don't, I don't understand why, like, that was the big deal. Um, the big thing that I learned about uh, from, from Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls was, A, uh, I'd never seen John Holmes come before, so that was uh, – I'd never actually seen a John Holmes come. You said it was kind of entertaining. Um, and, then I, and then I watched um, – I was sitting there, and I was looking – when you're sitting and I'm sitting and I'm watching it with my wife and we're just like criticizing their technique. It's just, it's like, come on, man, you can't, you can't eat her out. Like, like that's, she's not wet at all. Like you've got to, you're just, the standards for, for a cunnilingus in a hardcore pornography have definitely risen in the last 40 years. That's all I'm going to say. 
Um, it's gone beyond licking sandpaper. You're saying basically, yeah, it's gone. It's gone beyond the kind of dryly tonguing, you know, <laughs> out of the corner of your mouth, um, pretending that the, that the occasional nudge of the clit with the tip of your tongue is going to do anything of any significance um, in terms of uh, getting your partner off. That's you know, you you've really got to you've got to get in there. You've got to do your job, and uh, you know, I I think uh, improved standards for cunnilingus is the big thing that I I think that, that modern porn gives us. Um, yeah, at least, I, uh, at least the kind of alt porn and stuff that I that I'm more familiar with. I mean, but even the mainstream industrial porn does better than that. You know, I mean, that's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, that that's sort of that's sort of the uh, that's back in the sort of uh, independent, uh, real sort of uh, pioneer days of like uh, porn really really becoming part of the mainstream to a certain extent. So, you know, you, you're you're kind of expecting to see some pretty ham fisted shit going on. Um, yeah. And, then and, to, I, and I hope that all of our fans, all of the people who showed up for a second time after Jack showed up and wanted to hear us talk about like really highfalutin, artsy fartsy, um, intelligent commentary about film, really enjoyed the conversation about anal leakage we just had. I think that's, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, in in badass <laughs> boobs and body counts defense, they do like to engage in uh, hyperbole <laughs> when, when they're yeah, discussing no, films. That, that that was obvious. I, I'm in no way really trying to pick a bone with that podcast as much as I was like, I just had to see it for myself. So the the film got another view based yeah. on me uh, listening to the podcast, which I guess is a, is a net win for everybody involved. But you know, yeah, and uh, and just uh, for for anyone watching who's actually listens to that podcast or interested in listening to that podcast, they're going to be doing the cheerleaders from 1973. Uh, should be out around the same time this episode is out. Definitely check that out. That's one of my favorite sort of like softcore uh, TNA comedies, and I'm definitely interested in hearing what they have to say about that film. Well, maybe I'm going to have to watch that film. I haven't seen that film, so uh, oh yeah, dig it up and uh, watch it myself. So yeah, but, we're not watching. Uh, we're not talking about any films of our own this week, right? We're just uh, responding to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're still basking in the glow that Jack Graham brought us a huge number of uh, listens. Well. Uh, we 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 were off for a week, and then we just basically we've been sort of having a bigger sort of presence and connection with other podcasts and people and stuff, and it's been nice. We've been sort of almost feel like we're sort of merging into some sort of community with some people, and yeah, there's just been a lot of stuff to talk about. So yeah, it's cool. But uh, okay, so that that was the comments. So uh, we can basically move right into what we've watched in the last little while. And I know you've only basically watched one thing, Daniel. But uh, let you jump right into it. Sure. Besides Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls, I actually watched <laughs> a film from 1993. Uh, it is called Mind Warp. And okay. uh, the way I found this was because Mind Warp is the title of a Doctor Who story that we covered on Early Spaceman a couple of weeks back. And in my kind of research, I was kind of looking at it, and then I found this 1993 Bruce Campbell film. Uh, it's <laughs> actually one of three films that was actually released by Fangoria in, in uh, their oh, yeah. video uh, sequence. It's supposedly a film that's kind of about, like, virtual reality and, like, these uh, kind of uh, what is real and what is not real and kind of these societies that are, uh, you know, hampered by... Uh, being strapped into machines all the time and that sort of thing, but really it's just a, a vehicle for some actually pretty cool low budget um, creature effects and uh, blood effects, gore effects from the uh, early '90s. And um, Bruce Campbell being kind of badass and Bruce Campbell and yeah. kind of silly. It was an entertaining watch. It was worth the 90 minutes I put into it. Um, it's probably 
just skip the first 30 minutes, ironically. Like, it's you don't need it. It's it, Unless you care about the plot at all, which you don't. I mean, just kind of <laughs> skip it. It's it's uh, at least the first 15 um, because it does start kind of slow. But uh, oh, yeah. pretty, pretty good little film. You know, nothing that I think is worth, like, really talking about to any great degree. But um, uh, it's fun. It's got Bruce Campbell in it. It's got some really cool gore effects. And um, it, there's, a, there's this kind of handmade almost like fraggle rock quality to uh, certain oh, really? sequences um that i uh it's not puppets but it's got this kind of like it's got that same sort of feel um you know it's a uh, very handmade you know and, and and i liked that it was it was a nice again a nice little watch uh worth uh, worth checking out if you're if you're a fan of this podcast i think you'll get about as much pleasure as i did out of it so right on yeah i've never watched that one uh i i've definitely heard of it but I've, that's that's definitely a bruce campbell film i never watched so mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to actually check that out. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not terrible. <laughs> and not terrible was you know I, I turn on a lot of these things and I go okay you got you got about twenty minutes to grab me, and if if you have it then I go okay I, I didn't care enough to finish it so I'm fine with it. That, that that seems to be a constant theme with a lot of the stuff we talk about on this podcast. It wasn't terrible. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, it is. It is kind of like we do, we do kind of a, there's such a lowered bar for so much of this stuff when you're like, oh, yeah. a direct to video cheap film from 1993 produced by Fangoria. So don't go into this for a plot. Don't think like, oh, there's some amazing performances. Don't go into this thinking there's going to be some big idea or theme. It's like, yeah, it had some pretty cool creature effects. That's what that's all anybody cared about in this movie. It achieved its goal. What do you want me to say? If you like cool early '90s creature effects and you haven't seen Mind Warp, check out Mind Warp. End yeah. of story. They, they, they gave Bruce Campbell a hundred dollars a day and a tuna sandwich, and he gave his A game. So that's all you asked for. I gave his B plus game. Oh, okay. Game, you know. So the tuna he does have a love scene old. in the movie. So you know, oh, yeah. maybe, maybe maybe not the tuna sandwich. He just had. He just got to have a love scene. So you know. yeah, there you go. He got the tuna anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just that. That's uh, you know. <laughs> uh, I've actually watched quite a bit of stuff, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple things. I watched the movie last night actually on Put Locker. Um, it was one that I was actually kind of interested in. It's uh, it stars Elijah Wood and Nicolas Cage. It's called uh, The Trust, and it's sort of a it's a little uh, sort of crime drama slash heist film uh, with some comedy in it. It actually has Jerry Lewis of all people in it in a sort of bit role as Nicholas Cage's dad. Wow. Um, yeah. It Does, was he weird. Flavin? Does he say Is he, he kind of, who, no, who, who, who choose more scenery, Jerry Lewis or Nicholas Cage? Nicholas Cage does. Jer- wow. Jerry Lewis is incredibly subdued. Uh, I think it might have more to do with his age than anything else in his medical conditions, but, uh, and he's actually pretty good in it. Like he, you know, he he just sells that he's this old cop or whatever. That uh, and basically these are two cops, Elijah Woods and uh, Elijah Wood and uh, Nicholas Cage. They're um, uh, part of the they're the the evidence section, evidence uh, record keeping or whatever. You know, they they collect the evidence and tag it and put it all in their appropriate places. But they basically come across this uh, discrepancy that adds up to, oh, this place uh, might have a hidden vault with all kinds of whatever in it, either drugs or money or jewels or whatever. So they decide to plan a heist around it. It wasn't too bad. It actually wasn't too bad. Uh wasn't great. Uh, it has Nicolas Cage once in a while going outside of his boundaries and just doing the, 
sort of weird ass Nicolas Cage quirks that don't really make sense in the movie to a certain extent. Um, but uh, for the most part, he's fairly subdued and he just comes across as a kind of a psychopath, you know, kind of psychopathic character. It's weird. It kind of doesn't do a perfect job of balancing comedy with like serious uh, drama. But for the most part, it's actually kind of an enjoyable watch for like 90 minutes or whatever. So it uh, wasn't wasn't too bad. Pretty, pretty decent crime film. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the performances. So. Uh, and just to see Jerry Lewis and anything at this point was kind of amazing. <laughs> his last film too. So, yeah. Could be. Yeah. Sadly enough. And, uh, Oh, um, after he dies is when, uh, was it that movie he did about the Holocaust? The day uh, the clown cried. Yeah. That's when it can officially be released is after he yeah. dies. Yeah. Uh, actually, Pat Oswalt has an amazing story about that movie, The Day the Clown Cried, because he used to do uh, live readings of the script. Mm-hmm. And apparently, uh, he was he was going to do one, and it was this tiny little thing. Like, 30 people were in the audience, and they were mostly fellow comedians. Um, but he used to do live readings with a bunch of his, like, comedian friends. And, like, he got a cease and desist letter from the, uh, you know, I, yeah. I'll see if I can uh, I can find that article and, and send it to you so you can put it in the show notes. If cool, you cool. Um, but yeah, that's definitely. a that's a really really funny story. Um, it's definitely worth checking out. You know, as much as I don't want Jerry Lewis to die, I want to see this fucking film. <laughs> yeah, just just because we've been debating having not seen something for sixty years, so it'd be worth actually seeing it to go. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that actually was as terrible as we always thought it was. Yeah, no, we, yeah, we should, that should never have been released. But we got to see it. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if it's just like co- completely disappointing. It's like just Jerry Lewis, like. Uh, sticking sticking bananas up Nazis' asses or something. I, don't know. I, I hope they do that with a du- as a double feature with Orson Welles' last film that, that they keep saying is finally going to be completed. I hope it's The Day the Clown Cried and The Other Side of the Wind as a, as a double uh, feature. Yeah, and I've in seen... Like, in like 2018 seen, or something. I've seen bits of The Other Side of the Wind too, and some of it's pretty good. John, what, what John is, Huston? Amazing, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, I mean, the, the bits that are... Uh, there was a Orson Welles documentary. Uh, Orson Welles, a one-man band, mm-hmm. that had like a big chunk of that, like kind of some footage from the completed bit that was in that that looked like really uh, fascinating and like yeah. very, you know, if all you know from Orson Welles is you know Citizen Kane and <laughs> the War of the Worlds, then you don't understand what he was getting up to no. in his later work. Um, yeah. we're, we're we're way off tangent now, but you know, hey, fuck <laughs> it, yeah, fuck we it. don't have an audience, nobody cares, you <laughs> know, yeah. Yeah, we're we're not going to retain the audience that Jack gave us anyway. So whatever. I said I said we embrace the digression because that's that's Jack's style. You know that's the the original impressed how style is to embrace the digression. So you know. Yeah, we we probably already lost most of the audience anyway when we didn't follow up exactly the next week. Anyway, oh, yeah. they're they're already gone after one week. Fuck these people. Yeah, <laughs> fuck those guys. They're they're like. Uh, they're totally unprofessional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the only th- other thing I'll mention, I, I watched a uh, short little uh, t- TV series, British uh, crime drama series, only four episodes. It's called Driver, starring the guy who played the governor in The Walking Dead, apparently. I, I don't watch David Walking Morrissey. He was, in, he was in Doctor Who. He was in, ah. um, he, he was in one of the um, 2009 specials. He, he played... The next doctor who is not actually the next doctor. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. I remember him. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. He's really good in this. Uh, 
what's his name? Uh, Com, uh, Comini? Mini, Mini, I guess is his. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who plays Chief O'Brien? Chief O'Brien. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't have a name. He's Chief O'Brien. He's Chief O'Brien. But uh, essentially, David Morrissey is a disgruntled cab driver who is basically going through a bit of a midlife crisis. Well, not even that. It's just his life is sort of stagnated, stagnated, and he's uh, not happy with where he is. And uh, an old buddy of his comes out of prison and gets him a job as a driver for what he discovers is a crime boss. And he basically gets deeper and deeper into uh, their their schemes. The whole series just sort of chronicles how his actions kind of come back to affect his family and help ruin his family. I, I did really enjoy that part of it. Like some of the decisions, some of the plot twists seem kind of outlandish and don't really feel believable but for the most part it's really grounded in great performances and you sort of feel uh the pain of the characters involved where uh just just the idea of what it would really do to somebody if all of a sudden your dad became a criminal and was acting Mm -hmm. as a criminal and he gets caught and then your family has to go into witness protection and so you've got a young daughter who all of a sudden has to just leave and not have her there's this moment where she basically comes up to her dad's face and is like look at my phone i've got 500 friends on facebook i have to leave all of these people i just have to distance myself from all of these people and never have contact with these people again because if i do there's the potential that these criminals are going to find us and kill us uh, and that was a person who might have been a fan of our Facebook page and then just yeah. would have to leave. So that's the tragedy. That's the real it, tragedy it of, the, terrible. of the series. Everyone everyone on our Facebook page, please don't let your father become a driver for a crime lord because it's just not going to end well and we're going to lose the fucking Facebook fucking subscriber. And, and we only terrible. have a few, so we can't yeah. lose any of you. Exactly. No, but that sounds it, awesome. I, I'm really interested in. I, I saw you post on Facebook about this. Um, yeah. Did you? Uh, how did you watch this? Was this on Netflix? On Netflix. It's on Netflix. Awesome. Yep. Cool. It's on uh, regular Netflix, and it's only a it's only a four episode series. It, it's just basically less than four hours of your time. Yeah, that sounds yeah. that sounds really. I, I I'm probably going to try to uh, pick that up this week. That sounds really interesting. I, I enjoyed. It. I enjoyed the performances, um, and there's some good plot twists and. It felt very, felt very gritty and realistic. Like it didn't. It, this movie, or I mean, this series could have easily become like the Jason Statham Transporter series or something like that. You know, like those kind of things. But it it definitely stayed away from that shit, and I really appreciated that about it. So it was really good. Uh, so yeah, we've uh, gone through that, and I think we can just get right into the movies we've going to review tonight. And we will start with the friends of Eddie Coyle from 1973. This is Eddie Coyle. I got five Smiths, two Lugas, and a 357 mag. You can open a bank with that thing all by yourself. And these are his friends. Eddie Coyle and his friends, the real world of crime. 
Cops cannot operate without information, and criminals cannot survive without favors. Here's 20. Who's calling up? Remember Eddie Fingers? You know, I want 10 guns. I want them tomorrow night. I'll be right there with the money, same place where we were before. I'll be there with the money, you be there with those damn guns, because if you ain't, I'll be looking for you, and I'll find you, too. Hell, the way I hear it, you may be mixed up in something that's going on. What did you do? You hit me a lot. Suppose I was to give you those guys that been knocking off the banks. You hooked in with the mafia or something? Tell you the truth, I don't know. Is this heavy set guy, you know? People are desperate for guns. I had a guy ask me seriously the other day, could I get him a few machine guns? You tell me about a guy that's gonna get hit, 15 minutes later he gets hit. You tell me about some guys in a job, but you don't tell me till they're coming out the door with the money. Suppose we was to talk about machine guns. Look, I got two problems selling machine guns to people like you. The first is selling machine guns. That's life in this state. If I give you this, I can't do no time. These guys have got friends, you know, and uh, I wouldn't live to get out. We could take him now. We take him. Directed by Peter Yates, who is probably best known for Bullet from 68. And uh, I also know him from Murphy's War from 1971 and Crawl from 1983, which I think might be a movie we might uh, cover at one, some point. One of these things is not like the others is, is kind of where yeah. I land on that. <laughs> but uh, I, I do know uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the Facebook page, uh, Cameron Sullivan was saying, you guys should really do some like sword and sorcery films. So we might do Crawl at some point. That, that might be really fun. Um, I know my Shannon would come on for Legend. My wife would come on for Legend. Ah, Tom Cruise and Legend, yeah. And yeah. me and Sarah, yeah. which is the, the, the real bullet point on that. <laughs> and uh, written by pa- Paul uh, Monash uh, and based on the novel by George V. Higgins, starring Robert Mitchum as Eddie Fingers Coyle, Peter Boyle. Uh, who probably most people know from Everyone Loves Raymond, unfortunately, uh, is Dylan. Uh, Richard Jordan is Dave Foley. Steve Keats is Jackie Brown. Alex Rocco, the great Alex Rocco, I'll reiterate there, is Jimmy Scalise. Joe Santos is Artie Van, and Mitchell Ryan is Waters. And I'll let you go to the summary there, Daniel. Robert Mitchum is Eddie Coyle, a low-level gun dealer with two major problems. One, his world is steeped in early 70s malaise, and two, He's about to go to prison for his partner truck hijacking. 
Mm-hmm. He's an old man with a new wife and some kids who he doesn't want to have to go on welfare like a couple of nigga. Well, I'll refrain from using the word. villain <laughs> Peter Boyle uses, but I think you get my drift. He's looking at a couple of years, and his way out seems to be ATF agent Dave Foley, Richard Jordan, who might or might not be looking to make a deal if Eddie turns informant. Eddie's been supplying guns to a group of professional thieves who are knocking off a series of banks, and they've been keeping them him in steady business, as one of their strategies to avoid detection is to simply drop their guns in a river after each score. Eddie gets his guns from Jackie Brown, Steve Keats, and first offers Foley Brown, then eventually the bank robbers, yeah, that got confusing, and first offers Foley Brown, then eventually the bank robbers themselves, in an attempt to save himself a run in prison. Unfortunately, though Eddie gives up his fellow gunrunner, the ATF gets the bank robbers without him, and he knows he's going to have to go to prison. Despondent, he goes to Dylan's bar and gets wasted. While he's there, Dylan gets a call from the mob informing him that Coyle is going to have to be taken out. And, friendship be damned, that's exactly what happens. Dylan takes Coyle to the hockey game with the second highest amount of sublimated rage of any film discussed on this podcast to date, second in Chasing Amy, and after getting him drunk, Dylan shoots him in a car with a twenty-two, leaving the car containing the body in a bowling alley parking lot. In the end, ATF agent Foley thanks Dylan for giving him the bank robbers, and while Foley may suspect Dylan in Quill's murder, nobody's going to do a goddamn thing about it. Yeah, and uh, I'm immediately just going to go to you on what your thoughts are on this, because I know you hadn't watched it before, and this I, is a I film... Never, I'd never heard of this film before. Um, yeah. This is, you, you said The Friends of Eddie Coyle. I'm like, what's that? I, I knew Paul uh, Monash's name, um, mm-hmm. because he produced a bunch of the stuff that... Uh, uh, William Goldman did in the 60s. He was a producer on uh, like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and, yeah. and some other stuff. So I kind of knew I kind of knew that name, and obviously I knew Rich Mitchum and I knew some of the other actors. But like I, I just I somehow this film completely passed under my radar. I I I find I admire this more than I like it, um, mm-hmm. which is I did enjoy the film. I, I really did. It took me a few uh, kind of sessions to get through it. I didn't watch it in one go. Yeah. I didn't find it engaging. Um, but I really found it uh, to be a really interesting portrait of this ultimately this, this really despicable guy, um, yeah. this, this character. Um, I really wish we'd done this as a, a two-parter with A Kiss of Death because I think it yeah. kind of covers a lot of the same themes. I think it's a uh, kind of a modernized take on that because it really is. I think Paul and I kind of had a disagreement when we did Kiss of Death because I, maybe maybe you did as well. I won't speak for you, but I... Uh, uh, really won't speak for anyone myself, but I, I think I kind of was of the opinion when we did Kiss of Death that this guy is really just, he's just selling out his friends. He's not, there's not, he's not really making a moral decision here. I mean, the reason he doesn't want to sell out his friends because he doesn't want to be murdered. Um, this is what happens when you sell out your friends. <laughs> and uh, the friends of Eddie Coyle, uh, he, he sells out his friends. Um, he's kind of getting fucked around by the cops. Um, it's, it's a very uh, kind of low-key, very... Um, I don't want to say realistic, but a very naturalistic take on that same kind of idea. Um, these are all kind of low-level guys. Um, this is this is a guy who's basically, I mean, he, he's basically a middle manager and like a, you know, you can imagine him at a Piggly Wiggly, like, you know, running yeah. a register for, for 40 years. Like, the, he's just selling guns in a parking lot instead of uh, doing some other dead-end job. I mean, that's just what he does. He doesn't want to go to prison for, not even for any particular reason, except like he feels some obligation not to. Um, but you know, he, he got caught. He's, he's going to fucking prison. You know, that's just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's not even, there's not even a sense of like, uh, when we talked about blood simple, we talked about how everything was kind of a, a working out of like, like there's kind of one bad decision and then everybody else kind of makes bad decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. This isn't even that this is, this is just like, look at how shitty the world is. Look at how shitty yeah. this, 
reality is. And it's very much um, of a piece with like night moves and the conversation in that same kind of era of uh, it's just the early seventies and everything just kind of sucks. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we're, we're, we're the heart of the Nixon. We're in the heart of Nixon land. Everything is terrible. Thankfully, Reagan's going to bring us morning in America in a few years, and everything's going to be hunky-dory from then on forward. Yeah, that's the way it works, yeah. I think I may maybe slightly disagree with you about Kiss of Death, but um, I do see your point where he is kind of a despicable guy who just kind of sells it to his friends. And, you know, he's not really a guy you can root for. And I don't necessarily root for the guy in Kiss of Death either. Essentially, this is... Like you, like you said, there's there's no real twists and turns or surprises. This is a very natural progression. This is just like the logical progression of what's going to happen to this guy because of the decisions he's made in his life. And that is basically the story of this. He is one of these guys who is on the fringes of like the basically the Irish mafia run, like the Whitey Bulger gang, essentially the Winter uh, uh, Bulger gang or whatever, running Boston and stuff like that. So he's he's one of the outskirts. He's one of the guys who's not necessarily in the gang, but he's one of the guys they use once in a while. And it tells the exact same story you see all the time. These low-level gangsters, you sort of feel a bit of sympathy for them, but at the same time you don't because they they sort of feel like they didn't know what they're getting into, but they totally knew what they're getting into. And this is a guy who's in his 50s. He doesn't want to do another prison stint because, you know, He's not necessarily an evil guy. He's definitely a morally questionable guy. But he has a wife. He has kids. He doesn't want to be an absentee dad in prison. He feels like he's just been abandoned by all of his uh, companions in his, in his sort of criminal uh, enterprises. And that's what happens a lot. I mean, there, there, there is no real brotherhood between criminals. I mean, especially on this level. It, the lower level guys, they are expendable as fuck. Well, I, I I always wonder how much the like the the brotherhood of criminals how much of that is really just uh, something made up by Hollywood, you know. I think it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not it's not like a real thing. I mean, this this is uh, again it, it kind of says like <laughs> the cops going to offer you a deal, mm-hmm. you're going to take the fucking deal, and yep. if you get whacked for it, I mean that's just kind of what happens when you take the deal yep. if if it, if it doesn't go the way it's supposed to. I mean, there, there's no, um, there's no sense of heroics to this. There's no sense of like he's standing on some moral principle. There's no sense that anybody's standing on any moral principle. Yep. They're all just a bunch of snakes. Even the cop, especially the cop, mm-hmm. because he's supposed to be held to a higher standard, but he's not standing up for this guy. He's not doing really anything to to help out the people that, that are helping him to to get, you know, the the bank robbers and to get to get everybody. And uh, you know, it's it's just everybody fucking each other over. But not even like for any big game. You know, it's not even like oh. There's a million dollars at stake or something. It's just like, yeah, this is just the way the world works. Get used to it. Richard Jordan is the uh, is the cop. In a, in a lot of ways, he's just as bad as all the all the guys that Mitchum hangs out with. I mean, he's definitely just another snake in the grass. He he makes no promises. I mean, he he alludes to promises, but he makes no promises, and he he just does it enough to string these guys along to get what he wants. Yeah, and these guys just get they get run over because they're replaceable. Mitchum. Plays a guy who's been probably been a criminal since since he was probably a teenager. He's probably basically raised up into the lower depths of the Boston mafia or whatever, and he's he's just he's expendable. I mean, he's he's just an old guy who hasn't hasn't said anything for years, so that's basically his only reputation is he's kept his word or whatever. But other than that, he's been to prison before. 
Uh, no one's looked out for him or done anything for him in his prison stint. He's come out and he's ready. He's almost ready to get back in prison again. And I've seen I've seen people like uh, say, you know, like, oh, uh, he's a lifer. He's just serving it in like <laughs> in like three year stints. Yeah. Like he's always just going to keep coming back. Like that's just. And I mean, the criminal justice system is filled with people like this. And and then you, mm-hmm. you, I mean, for me, it's hard for me not to connect it to kind of the larger kind of social condition because of the way the film is constructed. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, there is a subplot involving some like uh, some some radical left wing terrorist uh, groups and, and that sort of thing. Um, there, there's a little bit of a kind of trying to connect it to a larger world, which I think is interesting. Um, it is based on a novel, and I found myself finding this very novelistic in structure. And I I, I might try to uh, see what the novel's like. Yeah, I want to read it too. Um, but um, what I found interesting is, you know, it does kind of connect us to the criminal justice system and and to like the way that this stuff actually works in in real life, and as opposed mm-hmm. to you know the way that you know we go into witness protection and and you know I've got a you know there's the kind of Hollywood version, then there's just the like the very pedestrian real world of like this is just how criminal justice works, this is how police work works, and. Yeah. Uh, it kind of sucks because these are all just terrible people who are just. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. There's give not you even the, really any violence in the film. Like it's no. not even. There's there's no. There's very little like moment of excitement. Um, I yeah. will say that the there a couple of the bank robberies are like are crackerjack sequences. I didn't mention those in the, in the plot summary. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this is all just about like this kind of gray featureless existence that that all of these people live in, and some of them just happen to be stealing from others, but. Other than that, it's it's really about this sense of just malaise that's just pervading. All yeah, of and the film. I think that's a big point of the film. It just, it just really takes a lot of the uh, romanticism out of the criminal element. Like it, it really just shows you what these people, to some degree, really are like. Like it, they're just in a lot of ways they're normal people, but they're just caught in this really bad shitty system and they're making really shitty decisions and doing really shitty things and the cops are doing just as shitty things it's not the uh it's not the good cop bad cop thing where you know the 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 standard hollywood sort of trope that doesn't really exist in real life um it's it's just you know the cops using these people just like their criminal bosses in the upper echelon are used them you know, the, the, these people are used no matter where the fuck they go, no matter where they turn. They're being used by somebody, and they're caught in that sort of web, and there's no way out, really. You know, I this this is a film that again made me want to see like a modern version of this that that actually dealt with. Well, um, I, I would I would argue the town with uh, Ben Affleck. I would say that's I, kind I of like seen this. I need to see it. You know, that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's one of those. I, I heard that got good notices on release, but I haven't, uh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen much of anything in the last like 10 years. It's just, you know, yeah. Um, I'm trying um, to go, I'm trying to go all of 2016 with only seeing Deadpool from 2016. I see no other films from 2016. <laughs> and do a weekly movie podcast and not see anything from 2016. That's my goal. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, uh, the the town is definitely uh, one to watch. Like, actually, it's actually a pretty good double bill with this. Like, the town was actually really good because it it basically deals exactly the same thing. Basically, Boston, Massachusetts criminals, um, sort of sort of the same uh, outliers of of it. Um, I, I, honestly, the town is sort of like the uh, Alex Rocco led gang more than anything yeah. else because they're doing the bank robberies and stuff, right? Um, and I, I like the robberies, like the, the, the robberies are, 
they're kind of set up to give like some excitement in the film. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're just injected in there to do that because they didn't even really have to show them for the most part for the plot of the film. They they're just there, and they're you're like you're right. They're crackerjack. They're very well done. They make sense, and they just give a little bit of excitement into the film, which is honestly more of just like a really slow kind of character study more than anything well, else. It's a character study and then it has these moment or these sequences of, of, uh, of tension, you know, and it does, mm-hmm. I think that what those sequences do is they show us stakes. They give us the, the sense of what's really happening because in a lot of these, I mean, if you didn't have that stuff and you didn't have this kind of threat of violence, you don't necessarily get a sense of like what uh, Eddie Coyle is really doing and what he's doing, you know, like, oh, he's a stand-up guy. He's a nice guy. And like, no, he's providing guns to people who are like, yeah, threatening people, you know, t- taking a rich guy's money, you know, <laughs> morally, uh, morally gray area. Um, but, uh, like, threatening to kill the bank tellers and, you know, that sort of thing, you know, the people who are just the working stiffs, those are the those are the ones that I uh, would definitely take a, a stronger uh, view towards, mm-hmm. um, you know. And uh, you know, certainly there is a, there is one um, murder that happens in the middle of the film, probably avoidable if, uh, mm-hmm. if some, some different decisions were made. That murder really... Uh, sells the kind of second half of the film in a lot of ways in terms of uh, the tone kind of changes. Things are a lot more desperate. Um, there's a lot more sense of, uh, of just kind of looming threat as well as uh, this kind of uh, existential dread. Um, so if you kind of imagine the dread is kind of this like mist that's over everything, yeah. now they're also like storm clouds on the horizon sort of idea. So uh, yeah. And then these little mistakes, like th- these guys on the outskirts of the mafia, they can't afford to make these mistakes. They make these little mistakes and they're immediately cut off. They're they're yeah. just dead. They're gone. So when that happens, it just sort of snowballs shit, and there's no real coming back from it. It it, it has to be cleaned up. All connections to the higher up guys has to be uh, swept away, and they are in in the film. Like it, it's just the way it's done. Even even when Richard Jordan is talking to the DA or whatever. It, it feels like two criminals having a conversation about trying to snuff someone out of the organ, organization or something like that. Like the, it, it's it's so close to what you expect criminals to say. That, well, it is, it is almost playing this equivalence game. It is mm-hmm. it is almost saying that the that the, the cops are are basically morally equivalent to the to the criminals, and uh, because you don't see anyone doing anything that's of any like moral significance. Either way, I mean, you see some some murders happening, and you would say, you know, okay, the people actually killing people are worse than the ones that aren't. But yeah. you definitely don't see like this this kind of great moral distinction between what's going on. And um, it is uh, one of the ideas I kind of kept coming back to as I was trying to write the uh, the, the synopsis and trying to kind of feel my way through it because I was like, how do you talk about this? You know, in terms yeah. of like trying to trying to summarize it. And I kept thinking, you know, the film isn't about Eddie Coyle at all. It's about the friends of Eddie Coyle. It's about mm-hmm. all these people and the idea that, that Eddie Coyle's life is just circling a toilet bowl. And yeah. it's, he's been there for a while. He's been this turd floating at the top of the bowl. And <laughs> he finally, said nugget that keeps he coming stank, up. He stank just a little too much and they flushed him. And that's yeah. that's the film, you know. Uh-huh. And what, what, do you, what do you think about the performances on this? But I, I think this is actually one of Mitchum's best performances, honestly. I think Mitchum is phenomenal here, um, and it just makes me uh, hate his Marlowe more. Yeah, <laughs> you know? really, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I watched this, and I, I really, I only know Mitchum from Night of the Hunter. Like, I, mm-hmm. I really only know him from that. I think a couple other things. I mean, I've seen, I kind of know him 
is kind of the, the square jawed, you know, kind of hero or villain, you know, from the from the forties and fifties. Um, much more so than I know him as is kind of the later period uh, Mitchum. I really like him here. I, I mean, I like the performance, but I I there is this kind of point where I'm like, am I supposed to like this guy? Because I think the things that are that they're trying to turn him into this kind of likable guy is really just kind of a well, a, I, a, an old fashioned dick. I mean, he's just he yeah. he's, he's he's standing well, athwart everything. I mean, he's he the, the friends he keeps. I mean, this is not a likable guy. And I think no, that I, um, Mitchum's I, I, willingness to make him kind of an alcoholic and a and a, and a jerk and, and kind of uh you know he's he's kind of quiet he kind of drinks too much he's kind of you know whatever so he's kind of like oh yeah he's he's just that guy in the bar but uh, I think Mitchum's willingness to push that as far as he does inhabit that role to some degree that I just literally had this like I just don't want to watch this I don't I don't like this guy I I just don't like yeah. this guy same here same here um. That's what I liked about the performance is that he is willing to be unlikable. Like he, he really is a despicable kind of guy. He he but, has but he's pre- not he's not evil. I think there's, no, a, there's no, no. a distinction, you know. He has the he has the pretense of being just this regular guy, and to some extent he is, but he's just made such terrible decisions in his life and he constantly teeters on the edge and makes terrible decisions for his family as well, because they're all innocent victims in this when whatever happens to him happens. And I think he just commands the screen every time he's in this. I like that he feels authentically like a Boston gangster or some, you know, Massachusetts gangster who's been in this for his entire life. And he just knows the creeds and codes of this sort of society to a T and it just bleeds out of him whenever he talks to somebody. Um, when he's talking to the gun runner, uh, where he shows him his knuckles and stuff. How, how many knuckles do you have? Count your knuckles. Well, I have twice as many as you do. And here's why. And here's why you don't want to fuck me. Because these people will fuck you even harder than they fucked me when I fucked up. And I it, guess it, to have love and hate written there, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I I really love the performance. Uh, Richard Jordan, by the way, was uh, also in the Yakuza with Robert Mitchum in the seventies. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah. I'm definitely gonna be looking up some more of the later period Mitchum because I, I think that's uh, this is a phenomenal. Again, this is you know if we're just talking performances, this is one of the best performances mm-hmm. I've seen in a long time. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> I won't say a long time. It's a great performance. If yeah. we're if we're ranking performances at the end of the year, this definitely belongs on it. Again, I admire the film more than I like it, but I think the film does what it sets out to do. I think it is a really effective uh, kind of character study, and uh, it just kind of puts you in this in this world, in this uh, in this awful awful world, and says, "Yeah, I I, I will grant this is definitely not a feel good movie." I mean, right. and I'm not you, even expecting it to be feel good. I, I guess I guess for me, it's it's more. Uh, I think technically it's it's just sort of like it it um, it lacks a little bit of uh, uh, forward motion. And yeah, it, that's it not is, necessarily it is a bad thing. It's not necessarily that it's slow. It's that I kind of don't quite know where I'm going from. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't quite know what the film is kind of trying to say at time to time. I, I, yeah, I well, will I will try to revisit it and see if like having seen it to the end, kind of go back and rewatch it and see if it uh, I respond to it differently. But um, it was it was definitely easy for me to kind of watch thirty minutes at a time. You know, really. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Where 
definitely you get the feeling it, it definitely is taken from a novel where there it is slightly episodic in certain <clears> parts where you, you get a little disconnected because there, there's a part where you see the cops uh, like Richard Jordan talking to the DA. Then you get parts of the gun runner doing his thing. Then it comes back to coil. Then it goes away again to Peter Boyle's character, you know, who's sort of a slightly higher up than coil. And he's, he's more of a middleman and he's making even more morally, uh, uh, perilous decisions and, oh, no, no. and he's he's a he's an evil man like that yeah. that dude's a that dude's a prick especially since he's making like he's offering coil i mean it's his um uh robbery it's his uh heist that is sending coil to prison you know so mm-hmm. so it is it's sort of and, like he yeah he, in his his first job sent coil to prison <laughs> yeah yeah no there's yeah. there's a, there's a ton of uh you know um peter boyle is a really great performance in this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had not really seen him in a lot. Um, except for Everybody Loves Raymond, obviously. I'd seen him a bit yeah, uh, he's, uh, he's really fucking good in this. The, the, honestly, the only other movie I think I've seen him in is Where the Buffalo Roam. And yeah. that's the uh, Hunter Thompson with Bill Murray as Hunter Thompson. I have not seen that. So uh, maybe yeah. we need to do, maybe we need to watch some Peter Boyle movies. Yeah, we could do that. Hey, definitely. Go to our Facebook page and recommend some Peter Boyle movies we should see. Yeah, so. that would be awesome. Yeah. Go to a couple things here. Uh, uh, George V. Higgins also wrote Kogan's Trade, which is which I didn't know this. This was kind of cool. Uh, 2012 uh, film Killing Them Softly is based on. So <laughs> uh, a film a film we both hate. Oh, is, God. Is... <laughs> now, that's, that's a double feature that you should absolutely... Just do killing them softly first, because then you're gonna be like, I hate this film so much. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, God. But, but, but Boyle's character, uh, Dylan, is actually in that film, apparently played by Sam Shepard, and that almost, almost, I reiterate, almost makes me want to rewatch that film just to see. I, I want to read the books. How, how about we read the books and come back? Yeah, and, and that sounds like that a instead. better idea. Not ever watch <laughs> killing them softly again. Yeah. Fucking that was, that was fucking terrible. Yeah, uh, the budget for this was three million estimated. It did not do well. Uh, I don't think it made its budget back at all, even after rentals and stuff. So unfortunately, and I, I can understand that because this isn't really this is really this is hard to sell. Like that. That's kind of again when I do these synopses, I'm like, what's the lead? Like how how do we how am I selling this like idea? And I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to give you behind the scenes. I'm just trying to say like, how do you summarize this film to somebody? Well, it's a movie that's kind of about a dude who's kind of a dick and he's kind of a racist and he's going to prison, but maybe he shouldn't because he's not really that terrible a guy. And then there are some other guys who are just all manipulating him. Like it's 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 hard to and that and that's kind of where you know it's, it's kind of hard to um, to maybe see it, it maybe lacks that clear like through line that narrative through line to really kind mm-hmm. of give it a little bit more of a punch at the end because I, I did kind of get to the end and I'm like Wait, that's that's it's the end of the film like that's yeah. that's where we end I, I didn't um because when you do give me some of these titles when I if I don't know the film at all I will literally just sit and watch it and not like with no preconception so maybe mm-hmm. that's a you know the audience sitting down to it in theaters would have seen a trailer or whatever maybe they would have had a different experience but it is kind of like let's let's just view this film as it is. And, yeah, well, um, the, well, the, well, the trailer makes it look more interesting because you see the gunrunner stuff where, like, he gets set up by the police and and actually, uh, Coyle uh, sets him up and sells him 
to the police or whatever, and then you have that little action sequence and shit. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then they just put all the action scenes in the uh, in the trailer and go, yeah, this is what the film's going to be like. Yeah. Lots of action, gun runner running from the cops. And it's like, who's this, what's Robert Richmond doing in this? Yeah, why, why is he sitting in the pub drinking beer talking about how much his life sucks? <laughs> yeah. Just Alex go Ward. masturbate, Robert Mitchum. You'll feel better. Yeah, you will. Uh, just just go back to uh, <laughs> just just wait a few years and you'll get to see Candy Clark naked and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you'll you'll get to go to London for no reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex Rocco, by the way, who's uh, one of my favorite actors. He just he just died like last year, I think it was, unfortunately. Um, but he he was actually a former member of the Winter Hill Gang and um, he operating out of Boston. He introduced Robert Mitchum to Howie Winter, who was the second boss of the Winter Hill Gang. Really like Alex Rocco. I love Alex Rocco. Well, we'll do some Alex Rocco films. We recommend some on our Facebook page. Alex Rocco films. We should be uh, Detroit Nine Detroit Nine Thousand, or is it Five Thousand? I can't remember which, which fucking <laughs> number it is. But Alex Rocco is awesome in that. And of course, he was in The Godfather and stuff like that. Is uh, Mo Green? <laughs> um, all the shooting in this was done on location. One of the things I really connect with this film: living in Nova Scotia. A lot of the townships and rural areas are very much similar to Boston. Yeah. Um, and in, in the rural areas in the state. So when I watched this film, I was watching it and it's like, man, I know this place. I, I really know this place. I, I, I just kind of, just kind of feel like the colors, the, the sounds, the looks of everything kind of resonates with me. So there's a bit of a more personal connection for me with this if, film. If, if your life looks like this, I know why you sit online and talk to me about movies every week. <laughs> I'm not in a criminal gang, Daniel. No, no, no. But but if, if your life like looks like this gray, misty, awful, depressing, just uh, everything is wet and disgusting, and like your shoes are always muddy. If that's what life is like in your section of Nova Scotia, I get it. I, I get it. Well, well, we did talk about the weather earlier, and I told you it was raining a lot. Yeah, yeah, so, no, we. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's not that bad. I'm just saying, like the the, the films. Oh, no, no, no. There, there is that. I, there are definitely films that I have. Like a, I actually now that I live in Michigan, I have this connection to Fargo just because of all the yeah. snow. Like it's just like I and I'm like, oh, I kind of feel like it's home. It's like you know, it's like oh yeah. But this, but is, this film's this. obviously like takes place in the fall, and the fall in that state looks exactly, <clears throat> excuse me, like the fall in Nova Scotia. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I just. I just, I just really connected with it. And you really get a sense of the location here. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it is it is kind of like, I mean, I, I skipped a lot of the, the location stuff, but I mean, it is like a Bruins game where they're, you know, they're there and they, they mention a particular player who's, you know, and there's, there's Bobby Orr, yeah. for about Bobby Orr. I don't know anything about fucking hockey, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, apparently he's a big deal. Yeah. So congratulations. Well, I, I, yeah. I, know, I know enough that Bobby Orr is like one of the single greatest players ever. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's a good line where he's talking about like, look at that Bobby Orr. He's got his whole life ahead of him. He's going to be great. And it's like Robert Mitchum, of course, has none of his life ahead of him. He's dead on that night. So, <laughs> yeah. Also, just going back to the town here for a sec uh, from 2010, Jeremy Renner's character in that film is actually watching this film in in the background of the. Uh, you can hear the audio. 
So you can hear actually hear Robert Mitchum speaking. And their gang, they actually... <laughs> uh, it's not spelled out that they actually got the inspiration to do their crimes based on this film. But they do their crimes exactly like <laughs> the crimes done in this film. They, they do well, the thing where they, they kidnap... Uh, uh, they kidnap the executive and yeah. uh, like keep his family hostage. Yeah, that, yeah. It, that reminded me a little bit of the scheme in... Um, uh, not fuck. What's the, uh, dirty, dirty Mary, crazy Larry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the the biggest connection, of course, is that they, they take their hostage and they take them out to the the seashore and they sent them walking towards the beach and then they speed yeah. away. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. So that's good. And again, I'll recommend the town because that's an awesome fucking movie. Yeah, you're making me want to watch the town now. So I, I had like very little interest in it beyond like oh, I'll get to that eventually. But now I'm I'm gonna put that on my list. It's, it's really good. It's really good. Surprisingly good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was I, kind of the beginning of like Ben Affleck kind of coming back as an actor and kind of like like you know he he'd been he'd been kind of fucked over by Hollywood for a while and then uh, yeah like oh we made some we made some good stuff like it's, it's pretty cool. say what you will but ben affleck he is actually a legit talent i i i i've i've never had anything really negative to say about ben affleck honestly yeah. i've always thought he was a you know he's he's everything i've ever heard about him is that he's a decent stand-up guy very kind of even when he was like at the height of his fame and celebrity and you know you know fucking jennifer lopez he was a kind of working class boston guy who just happened to be making 20 million dollars for for a movie yeah and like, yeah, you're gonna make some terrible movies because you're like, fuck, they'll pay me twenty million dollars. Hey, I'd go star in anything. Like, I'd go do force sure <laughs> if they pay me twenty million dollars. Like, yeah, yeah, and even even uh, even the reviews for Batman versus Superman, everyone's basically saying he's the best thing in it. <laughs> I've heard uh, I've heard Gal Gadot is the best. thing. Yeah, well, that too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, um, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have to see that. Maybe, maybe we'll see that. Uh, maybe I will see two films this, uh, this. I have seen it, and guess what? If you if you watch that, you'll be watching like five films in one film. Let's put it that way. I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be like a horror anthology film. Only it's not. <laughs> it'll be a horror. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll guarantee that. Uh, okay, let's let's move on to fucking zero effect from nineteen ninety. You're probably the best. Excuse me. Excuse me. You are the best private investigator in the world. Two shots, down she goes, execution style. Guess what the victim's name is. Uh, let me guess. No, I don't mean really guess. There's no way you can actually guess. Clarissa. Being blackmailed, Mr. Arlo. How desperate? Scale of one to ten. Bordering on manic. <clears throat> I need the matter resolved. Take me to the scene of the crime. My employer is hardly your typical private detective. What did I tell you about the curtains? When he's working, smoothest operator you've ever seen. Brave, slick, cunning. As soon as he gets off work, complete freak, nuts, tactless, terrible, rude. Hello. What's his name? Harold Burgess Mitchell Hardwell. Nick Carmine. Daryl. Sergio. 
But I'll give you one million dollars if you sell out your boss. When your number's up, it's up. Two million dollars. Innocent people suffer and murderers get away with it. Five million dollars. What kind of a hold does this guy, whoever he is, have on you? These people are victims of plots and they need our help. So what if I was to walk in there right now? What would happen? I'll shoot you. I have a gun and everything. The mysterious and brilliant Daryl Zero. Uh, can I ask you a question? What's that? Why are we talking on the phone? Okay. Written and directed by Jake Kasdan, who, of course, is the son of Lawrence Kasdan. So that's fucking significant right there. Bill Pullman as Daryl Zero. Ben Stiller as Steve Arlo. Ryan O'Neill as Gregory Stark. Kim Dickens as Gloria Sullivan. Angela Featherstone as Jess. Hugh Ross as Bill. And Matt O'Toole as Craig and Vincent. And I'll let you go to the uh, synopsis. Daryl Zero, Bill Pullman, is the greatest private detective in the world. We know this because his frontman, Steve Arlo, Ben Stiller, is a master of understated hyperbole directed towards potential clients. Zero is also a socially maladjusted recluse, obsessed with his personal privacy, who consumes way too much tab and amphetamines, and composes truly awful love songs on his acoustic guitar. We know that because that's how Arlo describes his boss to his fellow lawyer buddies over drinks. And probably even worse than that to his girlfriend, who never sees Arlo due to the erratic work schedule caused by his eccentric boss. Zero is, to quote Arlo, a man who can speak six languages and fly a jetliner but has never filed a W-2, otherwise known as our hero. Zero is hired by Portland millionaire Gregory Stark, Ryan O'Neill, who is simply looking for his lost keys. But of course things aren't that simple, because these keys connect to some kind of complicated blackmail scheme that has already cost Stark hundreds of thousands of dollars, and none of his previous attempts to locate the blackmailer have come to anything but smoke. Through what he calls the two obs, observation and objectivity, Zero dons a series of disguises, finds Stark in his element, and quickly discovers the identity of the blackmailer, the lovely Gloria Sullivan, Kim Dickens, and one of her very first film roles, who Zero has already taken a bit of a shine to. The rest of the plot is a bit too elaborate to uh, belabor here, but suffice to say that Zero is far too dedicated to his intellectual game to allow the matter to rest there. Having found the blackmailer, he must resolve the rest of the story, a matter that becomes only more puzzling when it turns out Stark's keys have been hidden in his office couch cushions where he dropped them a year before. During the investigation, Zero gets closer to Sullivan, who turns out to be more than a match. She sees through his facade, probing his true identity, and when she dares him to help her with his t- with her taxes his disguise at that point being of an accountant named Ermine, the ruse becomes a date, and then something of an affair. I will not spoil the ending, but the film ends with the lovers separated, but somehow satisfied that they've each met their match, with the millionaire Stark revealed as a murderer and a rapist, and Arlo finally able to marry his long-suffering girlfriend. Based on what you've heard, is there any doubt that a TV version of this property spent years in development hell in one of the major American networks? Yeah, and it never became a series. They shot a pilot, and that was it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned it because uh, uh, I haven't seen this movie, but there was a David Duchovny movie from 2003 called The TV Set, directed mm-hmm. by Jake Kasdan, which basically was a fictionalized version of the attempt to get the Zero Effect into oh, really? uh, as a as a TV series. So uh, oh, that's okay. one I've always been wanting to see. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, I, I kind of threw that in there uh, as it was. So no, uh, you fine. recommended you recommended Friends of Eddie Coyle, and I recommended this one. Uh, so and, I guess you can um, get started on this. I'm really happy you did. Uh, this is one I've known about that I probably never would have watched until you recommended it to me. Very much like Punch Drunk Love, 
this was just something that was on my radar, but it was kind of an avoid, and I was pleasantly surprised. Not that I would equate Bill Pullman with Adam Sandler as far as annoyance, personally, with me. Um, Bill Pullman's always just been a guy like, okay, I'm I'm okay with Bill Pullman, but I'm you know he not, he's never done anything that's excited me. Uh, I've a lot, I loved him in Spaceballs. That was basically it, right? Um, Spaceballs and Independence Day. Those are the two like Bill Pullman. No, films, Independence right? Day. Yeah. Fuck, fuck Independence Day. Uh, I, I don't like that film, but um, but it's, this, not, it's not a very good film. I loved it when I was sixteen. Can we just say I loved it when I was sixteen? Okay, yeah, that, that's fine. That's fine. But man, this was. A revelation for me for Bill Pullman. This made me more of a fan of Bill Pullman. I I fucking loved him in this. I fucking love this film. I've watched it three times since you recommended it to me. <laughs> Best thing about this is that I went into it cold and watched it. Then I looked up information on it, and I was really just pleased with myself. That is like, this is Sherlock Holmes scandal in Bohemia. This is that story. Yes. Yeah, basically yeah. remade in a, for modern times, and I was like, it was done really well. And it got Sherlock Holmes better than I've seen in a lot of official Sherlock Holmes fucking adaptations. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, I, I really I, was afraid you would not like this. I was literally... So I watched this with Shayna. Like, I had seen this before. So I'll tell you my, my when I first saw this, it was... Uh, I used to live in a apartment complex that got free pay cable. So mm-hmm. I had like HBO and Showtime and Cinemax. And so after all the titty flicks would go off, then they would show like movies again. So like at 2 a.m. <laughs> they would start showing like some, you know, so they just sometimes it'd be like another like Lorenzo Lamas in a movie that has like Nikki girls. Yeah. And then sometimes it would be like a real movie. And you never knew. So just kind of like I sit there, I'm 2 in the morning. I'm like, do I want to go to bed or do I want to watch this? And so I put this on, and then you get like kind of the opening credits. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Zero Effect. I've heard of that. This would have been maybe uh, 2002 or so, kind of in that in that time frame. So, um, it was, yeah, it was 98. So Yeah, 98 is when the movie was made. So it was a few years after that because it was on late night cable. Mm-hmm. You know, so 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere like that. And I stayed up all night and watched this fucking film. Like I said, until like 4 in the morning, which, I mean, you know, I was 22. So, you know, it's just something I did. But, yeah. you know, still, I was like, man, this is re-, like, I kept thinking I'm going to turn it off and go to bed. And then it would get more interesting the longer I mm-hmm. sat and watched it. And so it's always been one of those hidden gems for me. Like, nobody I know has seen this film. And nobody thinks, like, people are like, oh, yeah, like, Ben Stiller, like, in, in yeah. Bill Pullman, and in, in a, like, a stupid detective story movie. Like, come on, this is, this is just, this is just really bad, right? Um, it's kind of badly marketed, but, like, it's, uh, I was watching it with Shana, and she's like, this is good. This is really good. And I'm like, I know. I'm confident. I knew it was good. Although I did have to sit and ask her, like, is this a good movie? Like, is it like, am I, am I, am I stupid for thinking this is good? Cause nobody likes this movie, but, um, this is, uh, <laughs> so, uh, when Shannon and I watched, uh, Deadwood, uh, the first mm-hmm. time, you know, so a few years ago, uh, Shannon's like, why are you so obsessed with the Joni Stubbs character? And I'm like, it was Kim Dickens. And she was like, I, okay. Like, who is that? I'm like, she's the girl who's in the zero effect. And, uh, now Shannon has seen the zero effect. She's like, I completely get why you. Yeah. Felt like <laughs> um, and that's that's uh, she for me uh, for me. She's the key to the film. I actually um, I I fell in love with her and I followed awesome. her career for fifteen years now. Um, I think she's she's amazing in the film. And um, 
you know, her performance is the linchpin that makes the film work. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm yeah. I'm talking too much. I, I was I was trying to let you uh, kind of talk about what you thought of the film overall. But but yeah, I mean, it, it's not it doesn't exactly follow a scandal of Bohemia to a T, but it definitely adapts it into a modern context very well. It adapts the the characters into a modern context very well. Um, Bill Pullman just basically does an amazing job as a sort of Sherlock Holmes type character. I mean, just very it's it's got all the it's got all the classic features Sherlock Holmes. He's not necessarily socially inept. I would not say Sherlock Holmes himself was socially inept. He was just above being social with people. He just didn't give a fuck. He was like yeah. because he's he's he is a human computer to a certain extent, but he had the drug addiction problem. He had the thing where he was playing his own music with the violin in in his study, which was apparently also terrible uh, to some extent. Uh, <laughs> fucking uh, Pullman is when he's doing that love song early on in the film. He he reminded me of like a really bad Tom Waits imitator, like covering the worst Bob Dylan song I've ever fucking heard. Essentially, yeah, no, it's, it's it's basically just a dude like wailing on a guitar with with like with two chords and yeah. um, you know wailing about love. Like that's all he's doing. You know, yeah. it's... but it's but it's great. Like Ben Stiller is awesome in this. He's essentially the Doctor Watson to his Sherlock Holmes. This, Although this was before Ben Stiller, this was when Ben Stiller was still acting. You know, so yeah. that that helps. The the only difference, of course, is that um, uh, Pullman in this takes it upon himself to write his own memoirs instead of having uh, Watson do it uh, or uh, still <clears throat> do it. And, and and of course, in the actual Sherlock Holmes stories, um, Sherlock Holmes himself is always kind of disdainful against the stuff Watson writes because Watson always kinds kinds of like trump it up and make it more exciting. So. Here you actually get the uh, ideal Sherlock Holmes writing his own memoirs kind of thing where he's just sticking to the facts. He's not trying to make anything exciting or extraordinary. So I, I enjoyed that as well. And to, just watching him type on the fucking computer, that <laughs> the fucking old dated fucking it computer. Was, it was 1998 and that computer monitor was old then, you know, so. Yeah, it was, it was like... I, I had these like Doogie Hauser flashbacks. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, it's not far removed from that. Yeah, um, what I what I found interesting, kind of rewatching, because I actually watched it twice this week, um, or we we went two weeks, so I watched it and then I rewatched it again, mm-hmm. um, just because I literally was like, oh, I'm just gonna watch the first like 20 minutes, just like before bed. I was working. I got to work the next day, and fuck, I stayed up till midnight and watched the damn movie again. So you know, <laughs> it, it really is like uh, easy to easy to get lost in again. Um. I find, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, how much it is. I mean, it is based on the, the Holmes story, and uh, it is not just Holmes, but it is a kind of comic distillation of Holmes. It is kind of yeah. like pointing out the kind of ridiculousness of the concept, and in a lot of ways, how many of the fucking uh, modern-day TV shows are basically, look at this, like, quirky police procedural that we've done. Uh, the Zero Effect rips them all off before any of those ever existed yes. and does it better. You know, yes. um, not only that, but I, I thought it was interesting and we'll, I guess we'll talk about it when we get uh, a little bit further, but uh, it's a film that relies on um, not just kind of being Holmes, a Holmes pastiche, but it's almost putting this Holmes character in a Marlowe world, in, mm-hmm. a, in a noir world, because it is kind of about, you know, 
Who hires you? Who's going to actually pay your fee? It's some rich asshole who's got something to hide, and probably because he's a terrible, terrible person. And um, that's exactly what we find out here. Um, yeah, and, and Pullman's character doesn't care. Like he, He's like, okay, let's just do it. He just um, wants the puzzle. I mean, all he yeah. cares about is like they, they pay me, and I get to be the greatest private investigator in the world. That's that's who I am. I am the greatest private detective in the world, and therefore, this is what I do. I have to keep like it's almost like he's proving something to himself, you know? Yeah, it, it's it's the um, it's the Ben Stiller character that actually has the <laughs> the real disgust. Like he he learns that this guy is a murderer and a rapist. And he's like. I don't want to fucking defend this motherfucker. I don't want to help him at all. Yeah. No, yeah. he's, you know, he has the kind of crisis of conscience. And, uh, you know, ultimately, again, it does feel a little bit like a, a kind of pilot for a TV show that, you mm-hmm. know, you can imagine the, all the adventures that these two would have together and, you know, the kind yeah. of gradual. Um, ironically, it probably would play better today than it. I mean, I, I think you could absolutely get a zero effect TV oh, show. Oh, it, it, it totally, like, like stuff like the Mentalist and stuff that's on TV. I mean, this just this, totally this, this, this is this would be the good version of the Mentalist, you know. Yes, <laughs> like, you yes. Know? Um, there's a show called Psych that I uh, that I kind of yeah. watched for the first uh, you know few years until it just got silly. But uh, you know, it kind of it's it's so like everything on the USA Network is built out of this DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, the closest thing is really Monk. I mean, I can't imagine that the creators of Monk did right. not see this. Film. Right, right, right. Because that was the first big one, and that kind of set the mold for all the other ones. Um, Again, I was rewatching this, and I'm like, man, this just feels like a TV show today because Mm -hmm. there aren't so many TV shows that that borrow from this formula to to, to, uh, a small degree or a large degree. And so I'm glad that you enjoyed it despite the fact that it – it's it's it would be easy it's easy to make this feel derivative today, especially if you kind of watch. Um, I well, I, I just found this more enjoyable than those kind of TV shows. I mean, yeah, because uh, it was just it was just written better and done better all overall, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. And 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 I think for me, it's the and I agree with that. It is done better, but it's also uh, because of the performances and the relationships. Yes. Um, you know, he solves the mystery in ten minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, like I, I didn't time it, but like from the time that he first approaches Stark to the time that he discovers the blackmailer, it's only a few minutes of screen time. Like mm-hmm. the, the case is solved by Stark's yeah. opinion at that point, but he's already got a connection with the, uh, with the Kim Dickens character with Gloria. And he's interested in kind of, he feels both the professional obligation, but he also finds this, this connection. And this is a guy who's hiding himself off. This is a guy who's not connecting in it is a little bit of a cliche that like he meets the girl and you know suddenly he he feels but it, it's not really about the girl even it's about this sense of like actually wanting to interact with the world in in not ways that are uh completely abstracted and you know it's not just objective and observation it's actually interacting and actually mm-hmm. being intersubjective and kind of understanding the world as it is you know and, and being a part yeah. of the world and and he he manages to, to do something that Sherlock Holmes can never do. He actually uh, has feelings for someone to that degree, uh, yeah. especially a female character. Because Sherlock Holmes, the the only thing he ever sort of felt for Irene Adler is that he respected her because she was the one person who could beat him. Right. And here, basically, it's it's telling Sherlock Holmes falling in love with Irene Adler, Adler yeah. to a certain degree. So, so I, I actually appreciated that. I liked it. It was done really well. well. And, and it is a mutual relationship. I mean, this mm-hmm. is very much like they they each find this kind of broken thing in each other, and they realize that they are what the other person needs 
to feel whole. Yeah. And they have this very brief connection, but it's a very real connection. And uh, I, I think that's that's an important thing to see. Um, well, and, I think, and again, I think Kim Dickens sells it. I mean, it's her performance that, because if she was not as phenomenal as she was in this film, you wouldn't buy the relationship. You know, yeah. it's the fact that it, it, this is reciprocal, that she's smart in the same way that he is, just kind of on the other side. Maybe not as smart as he is, but she's smart. And that she is responding to, to that thing in him. She sees past this kind of outer exterior, this kind of dweebish guy, and sees mm-hmm. this kind of hurting person that's inside. And uh, she has a, a bit of dialogue that's uh, something like, you know, I, she loves being a paramedic because it means she, she goes into a, a chaotic situation and uses her skills. And, you know, it's my responsibility to, to make things have order again. And you definitely get that sense of, like, that's what draws her to, uh, to zero, really. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there there is a there's a sort of little smidgen of like just reality to that kind of situation where sometimes people sort of you know they sort of uh, shuffle into your life and you make a connection with them on a really profound level and then it's very brief and they shuffle out. I mean, sometimes that happens, and that's what happens in this film. So. Yeah. I, I I really like that. I I like that it basically had the balls to deconstruct Sherlock Holmes and make him human to a certain extent, and just kind of explore what would happen if you did that. And yeah. I think it does a really great job of doing that. And uh, I think Bill Pullman gives a really great performance. I think he, he, does. he does. He does get kind of like yeah, he's just kind of. A, I wonder if he was less attractive. I think he's just he's a little bit too kind of generically attractive. To, to really for, for people to really buy him as an actor, but um, or maybe he just never found that role. Maybe that I, was- I I think that's what it is with him. I don't think he ever found that big role that connected him with the general public. Because I, I watched this and I thought to myself, you know, why don't I respond to him more? Because he's awesome in this film, and I was just like fucking blown away by his performance in this. And then I'm thinking, like, what else has I seen him in? Okay, he was really adequate in Spaceballs. He was okay in Independence Day. And then I'm trying to think, what else have I fucking seen him in? I don't know. It was some 90s film that was terrible. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, he, he just... They didn't make it. Every film in the 90s was amazing. I don't know what you're talking about. There were no terrible 90s films. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know then. But maybe it was from the <laughs> 80s and it was released in the 90s. But yeah, fucking, I yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it's just he, he never seemed to have that connection with like a big audience that sort of propelled him. Yeah. And it, it, it's unfortunate because he, he actually shows in this film what a fucking great actor he actually is but I mean, this is this is again one of those like risky ideas where like i mean your your thing is like you sit on the edge of a bed and you kind of look pained and like you know in this kind of weird position holding your hands in weird ways and it would be really easy to kind of make this guy just to, like a like a, like a a freak for lack of a better word it would be really easy to just kind of go oh i'm just supposed to be crazy and and like you know but he really sells both the kind of he's brilliant at what he does and he's kind of pathetic like yeah. as a human being, and he's able to kind of sell both simultaneously. I think that the uh, the sequence where he's like uh, uh, doing the reversible jacket you know, <laughs> in, in his hotel room, and he's just like, and you kind of get that sense of like he's he's both like this is something he's doing because he's trying to blend into situations, and he's trying to be able to 
disguise himself at will. But it's also just kind of a really silly thing to be doing. Yeah. And the performance and the direction and the and, and everything really sell that moment. And if it wasn't a strong enough performance, he he would he would have a hard time uh, mm-hmm. selling it. Uh, just the hair he has to wear through yeah. <laughs> big chunks of this film. You know the the kind of crazy uh, hairstyles, and you kind of look at that and you go like, how how do you act under that? Like you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just talked to Elliot Chapman about acting and the, and the most recent noise spaceman. And he's a, he's a professional actor. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about like, um, cause we talked about Colin Baker. who's the yeah. doctor with the big, uh, bright coat you know, for, for the audience. who may not know that. And, um, he basically says like, how do you, I mean, he's like, you have to have a big performance in order to, you know, uh, survive that coat just in order to, to <laughs> otherwise you're just going to shrink into nothingness. Yeah. And I mean, it is something that Bill Pullman is able to like put on these kind of crazy, this crazy outfit. At the very beginning, the first time you see him, he's in the cowboy boots and the bright jeans yeah. and the, uh, the the lime shirt and the, the crazy hair and carrying a t- guitar. And, and he's, like, literally eating, like, cans of something. I forget, like, cans it of was, uh, tuna or something like that. Cans of tuna. He's literally just, like, scarfing cans of tuna in this kind of vaguely unpleasant way and sucking down a can of tab. And yet he's got like, a fridge full of tab. That is so <laughs> fucking gross. The, the, moment, the moment where... Uh, Steve Arlo walks up and he opens up the fridge and then he has to like find his drink behind yeah, all the Yeah, his Diet know? Coke, which is equally yeah. gross. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's uh, th- there are lots of little moments like that. I, I, yeah. I really appreciate uh, it. It, it, was, it was funny because like when I was first watching this, like the first like half hour or so, I was, I, I was almost expecting this to be like uh, Without a Clue from 1988. Uh, it was Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley in a Sherlock Holmes story where Ben Kingsley was Doctor Watson, and he was the actual detective. And he oh, just hired... no, that's is that without a clue, or is that um... it's without a clue? Where he hired he hired Michael Caine as uh, as an actor to play Sherlock Holmes because he had written all these stories based on his own exploits, and and Michael Caine was just like this drunk actor who wasn't a detective at all, and and it was actually Ben Kingsley as Doctor Watson who was the real detective. But he was keeping it on the lowdown because he actually wanted to rise in the metal, medical field. And he yeah. felt like if he was doing a detective shit, people would frown on him and not get him higher up. I, I've actually seen that. That's a great film. Mm-hmm. I've for- completely forgotten the title. I was thinking it was something completely different. So I was like, without but, a clue. But, no, that's not what that film is called. And then I Googled it and I'm like, of course Lee is right. So, yeah. you know, well, I, I, I just, I always I felt like. for doubting you. Uh, lead of the podcast. No, sorry. I, I just I, I just felt like for like the first half hour I thought, oh shit, Vince Stiller is the actual detective and he, and he's just putting yeah. on an act. Yeah. No, that's well, that's an interesting angle and it would have been an interesting angle. I, I like yeah. that too. What I what I find uh interesting is that the film starts off as kind of a comedy. You get a lot of the kind of broad comedy moments there mm-hmm. at the very beginning. Once you kind of meet Gloria Sullivan and once you kind of see yeah. the film does kind of transition into much more of a character study, mm-hmm. um, both of her and uh, really of all three, well, all four of our main leads, you know, the, uh, the Ryan O'Neill character, the, uh, you know, Kim Dickens, uh, and then the, the two, uh, Steve Arlo and, and Daryl Zero. It's, it's really kind of an examination of all their lives and the way that they interconnect and the way that they intersect. And I, and I, and yeah. I like, but particularly the the relationship between Bill Pullman and Kim Dickens is really um, that that date they go on, the kind mm-hmm. of date um, where he comes in to do her taxes, and then she's yeah. like, "I'm going to go take a nap," and he goes, "Oh, well, uh, you know." 
And I'm like, I will go take a nap with you, Kim Dickens. I will uh, not yeah. do your taxes right now. Yeah, fuck the taxes. Holy shit. Uh, let's do some deductions in the bed or something. I've, like I've, got, I've, got, I've got some some other things for my fingers to do right now. Um, yeah, yeah. They do involve intimate parts of your anatomy, and uh, we will be doing that uh, with your permission in the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes. So. Mm-hmm. There's actually several several stunning redheads in this film, actually. But uh, because actually, actually, I intended to include a line in my synopsis, but I, I avoided it for you. That yeah, uh, okay. we know that we know that the Ryan O'Neill character is a complete sociopath because of his fondness for redheads. Yeah, well, that that just lines up with me perfectly. Um, yeah. yeah. But I, I did like Ken Dickens' story and stuff like her background. That totally zeroes in on classic noir, like just the tragic story. A lot of a lot of really, really just bad, nasty stuff in her background. That yeah, yeah. the the Craig and Vincent when you finally learn mm-hmm. who Craig and Vincent really was and what was really going on with that character. And I'm trying to avoid it because I know we don't avoid spoilers on the show, but I really think people should see this film. Yeah. And for me, it's for me, it's legitimately moving in that that kind mm-hmm. of final um, phone call in the film. And again, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm leaving it vague, but the the final phone call in the film, I think, is is a legitimate tearjerker for me. Um, seeing that relationship and the way it it, it ends. This, um, this is a great film to fucking watch and find. Like this is. A kind of a forgotten film in the nineties and it's really fucking unfortunate because it's great. Like I'm I'm kinda kicking myself for have not watched it earlier. I mentioned it on this podcast before. I actually mm-hmm. watched it on what we've been watching like way back when because yeah. I, I really like rented it on fucking Amazon because I'm like I just want to see this film and I haven't seen it in forever. And uh finally we had the chance to do it on the show. So I'm really yeah. glad you liked it. Um, I'm really glad we did it. Unfortunately it was not a success. Five million budget Two million in actual uh, buys, but uh, and uh, for it, five million dollars, like this looks phenomenal for five million dollars. It does. I, it does. <clears throat> there's some really interesting camera work, uh, which you know you could argue is a little bit too showy. There are a couple. Of, it's very 1998 in this use of steady cam. Mm-hmm. We'll just call it that. We'll just say that. Yeah. You know, so uh, um, there are a couple, there's a there's a crane shot that feels a little gratuitous uh, towards the mm-hmm. film on top of a roof. And then there's a uh, kind of a steady cam, a uh, kind of a, a shot as a, as a certain uh, some some pieces of information are being revealed about the the history of the tape that uh, you know that are that are a little bit like yeah yeah I get okay Jake Kazdan this is your first film and you're very proud of the fact that you get to direct a film but um, yeah. maybe this wasn't quite necessary but I think uh, you know still like gorgeous and effective nonetheless mm-hmm. just kind of eh, that was a little unnecessary you know, but. yeah. <laughs> it's totally, totally forgivable because the entire film's fucking great, as far as I'm concerned. But... One of my favorite moments in the film is actually when he, when he, uh, when um, Zero is talking about, and it's in a kind of voiceover narration. It's like, uh, I would never forget uh, the girl, like any, any, and then you do this freeze frame, and it's on like. Not like gorgeous Kim Dickens in the dress. It's Kim Dickens like on the uh, on the uh, exercise equipment, like sweating, yeah. not looking like super hot. She's just kind of like standing there, like like the way a normal person would stand on a, which is courageous both for an actor and for and for the the, the film to to uh, yeah to because he because because she's not she's not played as sexy. She's played as interesting, and I think that yeah. that's what personally I respond to very strongly in this portrayal. Yeah, and, and it's real, because you think about how much time he must have spent in that fucking uh, health club 
staking out his uh, mark, and he's seen Ken Dickens in there, and probably that's the most he's, uh, other than the dates he's had with her, that's the most he's ever seen her. So, like, that's mm. where he associates her. And, uh, fuck, I'd watch Ken Dickens run on a fucking treadmill. Fuck yeah. I'd watch Ken Dickens do just about anything. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, Ken Dickens actually was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where I lived for, like, ten years. So uh, I also feel kind of a hometown connection to Ken Dickens. So, uh, <laughs> Ken Dickens, if you're listening to this, give me a call, all right? Because we yeah. need to set up a date. It's totally going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. <laughs> Kim Dickens. Kim Dickens is a fan of Jack Graham. Discovered this podcast, and now you know I'm going to get to date Kim Dickens. She's yeah. probably married and, and monogamous, so it's probably yeah. not something that's you know realistic. At all. <laughs> um, she's she's one of those celebrity crushes for me, it, it, and it is based on this film. And I I feel bad that like I feel that strongly about it, and that I have to talk about it on the podcast. But I I, I just I love her. I've I've been following her for a lot of years. So um, yeah, go totally Kim Dickens. Yeah, Kim Dickens. Dude, it must be just start on site. We got a lot of followers now. We got a lot of people listening to us. Yeah, you, you got you got to relent now. <laughs> <laughs> holy fuck! Um, I will say the only weak part of this film for me is actually the soundtrack, just because it's so obtuse compared <laughs> to what I listened to. The only song I recognized on this, and the only song that is actually one of my all-time favorite artists, is Nick Cave. And this is like from his worst fucking period ever, uh, doing songs. And it's it's a song that plays while they're in the restaurant talking to each yeah. other. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's such a it's it's one of those uh, where like oh we get an indie band and they're going to do the score for the oh, film. Which again, like there's so much that's very 1998 <laughs> about this film, and, yeah. and you do have to accept that like going into it, like oh, this is uh, late in the Clinton administration. This is what yeah. films just look at this time yeah. you know so um but but yeah for five million dollars and uh you know for, mm-hmm. for you know it's really effective it's clever um it's it's it doesn't feel like a cheap movie and it's got some great performances and uh it's underseen go watch this movie definitely yeah it, it needs to be re- revisited people need to check this fucking film out because yeah, it's and actually also really friends of Eddie Coyle because i don't I, I i probably gave it a little bit of a faint praise you know earlier but it, i mean that's it's a phenomenal film it's mm-hmm. a really good film um it's just a little bit less like easily involving like zero effect yeah. i can't imagine like w- w- sitting and watching the first 30 minutes and not finishing the film like yeah. it's, it's kind of it's kind of hard to to think like you wouldn't want to like kind of get drawn in and keep wanting to move forward it, yeah. it does move pretty fast it sucks you in it really does yeah. <laughs> i might go watch a little bit of it before i go to bed actually i have another document i'm like i want to go watch some zero effect right on so. all right so uh daniel tell people where can they they can find you on the interwebs Sure. Uh, well, I do have a. Uh, it is currently a Doctor Who podcast. It's called mm-hmm. A Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. Uh, here in about a month, we're going to be expanding and doing some other stuff. I might as well start uh, pimping that out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of uh, mentioning it earlier. I think we're going to absorb. They must be destroyed on site onto the uh, the Oi Spaceman family. So, uh, you know, uh, don't worry. The content won't change, but. There'll be a new website where you can go to, but mm-hmm. we're still working that out. But uh, eventually, we are going to be covering uh, the immediate plan is we're going to do Red Dwarf and Firefly as well as Doctor Who, and uh, kind of alternate weeks, and so it'll be kind of a, a big grab bag of content. And I hope people uh, go and search that out. I hope one of those three shows is interesting to someone, 
Mm-hmm. And then you can stop listening to me talk about Doctor Who every time you do a <laughs> demonstration on side episode. Yeah. Uh, but you can find currently the current version of it is at oispaceman.libsyn.com. That's oispaceman.libsyn.com. And uh, when we get kind of future websites up and stuff, I'll start using those. But for right now, that's the best way to, to find me. Awesome. And of course, uh, the trailer will tell you where to go. Please go to our Facebook site and leave comments and questions and suggestions for stuff to review. That is the best way to find us. And uh, we've had a really good level of response from people on uh, the, the Facebook group. I've really been enjoying it. And it's actually just way better than I ever expected. We've had a lot of really great comments from people. We've uh, gotten a little, few little discussions going about certain things. And... Uh, I just want to see that continue to go because that's what this podcast is all about, talking about movies and having fun and discussing and shows. The, and the stuff that's in the movies, you know, I, mm-hmm. I would I would like to, I mean, we. I think I try, you know, to kind of bring in the other stuff that's going on in the culture around it, you know, so yeah. Friends of Eddie Coyle isn't just about, like, crime, it's kind of about, like, <laughs> the the Nixon administration, you know, so so there is mm-hmm. kind of like, like, bring it on, like, we're, we're interested in broad conversations about this stuff and um you know i I'll, I'll sit and chat with you all day no problem so yeah well unless i'm at work right i don't have facebook access but you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh next week is going to be hangover square and the lodger both from 1944 mm-hmm. and we might even talk about some of the uh other at least i will about some of the other iterations of the lodger that have uh sort of happened over the years including the uh, Alfred Hitchcock one in the silent era. And um, yeah, that, that is the plan for next week. And until then, uh, thank you very much for joining me, Daniel. Uh, it's always great to be here. And Hangover Square has my uh, been dead since 1961 girlfriend, Linda Darnell. So look awesome. forward to that. Yeah. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. We will join you again next week and uh, goodbye. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For links to the host's other stuff, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can find links to the YouTube version of our podcast, our iTunes page, as well as our Facebook group, which is the best way to get in touch with us and leave feedback. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you!